This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, hello and welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. Um, this is John. If you're new to our YouTube channel, uh, we are a podcast and uh, we take a look at uh, issues that might be of interest to people who are really seeking a secular path to recovery from addiction. And today my guest is Timothy Clancy. He is an independent cognitive behavioral therapy counselor who specializes in self-destructive behaviors such as substance abuse and eating disorders and so forth. He is also a certified smart recovery meeting facilitator, and he is the author of a book that I just finished reading last night and really enjoyed. It's called The Road to Sobriety, A Personal Experience. And today he's my guest. Uh, Welcome, uh, Timothy, to Beyond Belief Sobriety. It's so nice to have you here. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I totally enjoy your book. Uh, There is so much in there. I mean, you start with your own personal experience, which is um, always valuable, I think, to uh, to anyone who wants to understand addiction is to to hear it from someone who's actually experienced it. Um, and then you go through a lot of detail about, you know, the nature of, of alcoholism specifically and the recovery process, different recovery options that are available to people. Uh, you talk about uh, relapse, how to come back from a relapse. You talk about the goals of sobriety. I mean, there's just a lot of good information in there. Uh, uh, I was reading the Kindle version, so there's little links I can link to and, and see where you got some of your information. And it was just really well written. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, I, I've read a lot of um, uh, self-published books, and some of them are really not so great. <laughs> this, one is a, this one is actually a pretty good one. So uh, really, really well written, and uh, d- you did a really great job with it. So... Um, that was a pleasure to read. It's something I, it's nice when I read a book like that, where I'm really comfortable recommending it, you know, so good job with that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So I thought maybe what we could do is kind of, kind of, kind of go through that book, um, and your own personal journey and what you're about today. And, you know, you, you start by kind of laying the foundation of your life when you were starting out. Um, it sounds like you really came from a nice family. You came from, a, you know, parents who loved you. Uh, you did have a learning disability and you were bullied as, as, a, as a young kid. And you think that that might have played a little bit of a role possibly in later on developing um, alcohol use disorder? I do. Um... I was because of the bullying, I was always kind of striving for, I don't want to say acceptance, maybe friends. And it turns out that my liver processes alcohol twice as fast as most people. So, you know, which is funny because I have epilepsy and that's where your epilepsy meds are metabolized. That's how I know. And I just, when I started drinking, I could drink faster and more than everybody else. So at parties, people would come up to me and, you know, the exact opposite of being bullied and whatnot, it was kind of being the center of attention. So, you know, looking back, that's what I think was a big part of it. Yeah, no, I, uh, I can relate. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if I was really bullied. I mean, I, I've been, I had my ass kicked quite a bit, but, but I, uh, but, uh, I grew up as a, I grew up in, in a military family, moved around a lot. So I, for me, it was always this need to kind of somehow fit in. 
And I started drinking very young. I mean, I was like eight or nine years old. So um, by the time I got to high school, um, I could drink anybody pretty much. <laughs> I knew I kind of, I kind of knew what I was doing, but it was one, it was also one of those, it was also one of those things where um, at the time, you know, I, I, I think I might've saw it as social drinking and I, I was definitely using alcohol as a lubricant to somehow fit in with those friends in high school, but ultimately, and, and really in a fairly short time for me, it really distanced me from those people and the alcohol actually ended up corrupting my ability to form, you know, actual relationships with people. Did, did you have a similar experience um, in the end? Yeah, it goes, or for me, you know, it went from you're popular because you drink to you cause problems because you drink. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would, we'd rather not be around you when you're right. drinking. <laughs> So slowly. And then, you know, by then, um, my disorder had a certain amount of grip on me. So it's, you know, who are you to tell me not to drink? You used to like my drinking. I don't really, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you talked too about, uh, you wrote about some of the differences, um, through that, through that, those phases of our drinking, where you talk about the difference between, you know, just being a social drinker, a problem drinker, and then a full-blown alcoholic. And, you know, I find that kind of an interesting discussion. I, I kind of think about this now kind of like um, I look at um, addiction as sort of on a, existing on a spectrum of, you know, you, you know, of different different levels. Um, but I, I think that was an interesting, an interesting discussion. And then you also talked about that's kind of related to that whether or not a person really needs to hit rock bottom before they decide they're going to get help. And I wonder if maybe you can address that a little bit here, if you can talk about some of those differences between problem drinking, alcoholism, and what actually has to happen for a person to, you know, get to the point to, to be helped to get into recovery. Uh, let me start with the rock bottom concept. Um, I think it's very important to set your own rock bottom. Um, I know I told myself, you know, if X, Y, and Z happens, you know, because everybody was around me was telling me I had a problem and it was, who are you to tell me I have a problem? So I went ahead and set my own, um, rock bottom. I told myself, you know, if this happens, you're at rock bottom which was significantly higher than some other people's, you know, you have people out there, no judgment that rock bottom is living on the side of the street and having to, you know, do whatever for money. Um, mine was, I defined myself at the time as my work. So mine was, if you get fired, you obviously have a problem with alcohol. Now I ended which is funny because I was committing, sir, I was attempting suicide on a weekly basis, but I didn't really see that as a problem or my rock bottom because that's not what I had told myself. Um, and I think it's healthy for everybody to have a rock bottom because, or self-imposed rock bottom, because you're told by AA, by social media by everything if you don't hit this you're not at rock bottom 
And I think that's, you know, I think that's dangerous. Isn't it? A, you, isn't that a weird message? If you compare it to yeah. like, you know, what if you went to the doctor um, and he said, you know what? It looks like you've got cancer, but you know, it has to get a lot worse before, <laughs> before we really are able to do anything about this. <laughs> no, that's a, a beautiful parallel. I, yeah. <laughs> we can't do anything because your cancer needs to spread to your pancreas before we really consider it all that bad. <laughs> Yeah, it is, it is kind of weird. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, for me personally, um, yeah, I, 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 I think that what happened with me was that I, I, uh, the things just fell apart to where it was like, fuck it. Okay. I got to do something, you know? Um, but I definitely went through a period of time prior to that where, you know, there were certain things that were happening to me. DWI number one, you know, that was kind of a bottom. DWI number two was a bottom. DWI number three was pretty bad, but that, but that alone wasn't it. It was had to, it had to be losing the job along with that. But I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I just would like to think that it would be possible for people to, um, I don't know if it's really important to focus so much on maybe whatever event is going on in your life, but you know, if, uh, it's hard to say. I, it'd be nice to know that it'd be nice if people could just kind of recognize it's really difficult when you're in the grips of an addiction. But if you can recognize that something isn't working and, you know, um, that you can get off at any time you want to. But I don't know if any of us can actually plan when we decide we're going to we're going to do this. Right. That's the weird no, thing I about it. I agree with that. You know, if you, you know, asked me in high school, hey, do you think trying to commit suicide is a bad thing. <laughs> um, I think most people would say yes, but you know, as you said, the grips of your addiction, it lowers that bottom and it keeps on getting lower and lower. Yeah. But what I found moving from your story too, though, is um, it seemed to me like that moment of decision for you was apparently, uh, I guess your mother was getting ready to take you to an intervention and you didn't know that at the time, I guess, but did she, is this, am I understanding this right or remembering it right? That she found you again, trying to commit suicide and she just wanted, she said, I just, whatever I can do to take away the pain, you know? And it seemed like that was the moment for you that you said enough. And I think that she was going to take you to an intervention and you already decided before that I've had it. Fuck it. I'm done. Is that right? I decided on the way to the, you know, and it's funny, you know, like you said, my mom has pretty much always been my best friend um, is to this day, which is funny because if you're 18 and you tell somebody your mom's <laughs> your best friend, you're a, you're a loser. But if yeah. you're 35 and you tell somebody, they're like, Oh my God, Very you're nice. so lucky. <laughs> Um, but she still is. And, you know, when one of your friends that drinks on and off, uh, tells you, you have a problem or something like that, you're like, well, whatever you drink, I can just drink more than you or something along those lines. But, um, my mom was just being tortured by it. And that was kind of the end of it. So when she picked me up and put me in her car and said, you know, I had blood all over me. I had puke all over me. Um, she said, we're going to drive you to my house and clean you up and everything like that. And I want to say, you know, tearing up, uh, I just kind of looked at her and said, mom, I need help. And 
they were taking me to an intervention. I don't think that would have turned out very well. That's what you said. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that you were ready before that because that intervention would have just turned you off completely. I wouldn't have gotten sober. There's no way. Um, I'm just a combative person and I was a psych minor. So I can tear people down if need be. And I think I say it in the book. Um, everybody would have left that room crying. It would not have gone well for them. Not at all. Um, but, and again, you know, when people say, what's your catalyst for getting sober, you know, some people, Oh, my mom found me with puke on me. It's another day. Um, everybody needs to have their own rock bottom. It's very important. Yeah. It's just, it just, there's gotta be some moment of decision. I think that, you know, where you, where you realize this is it, this is, this is it. You know, I think ultimately for me, it was, um, I couldn't stay out of jail. I, you know, I got, I was in jail a lot. It was getting kind of, yeah, it was really getting kind of old. You know, um, and I'm very fortunate. I wasn't like sentenced for long periods of time, but they put me on probation for like six months and watched me pretty carefully. So, um, yeah, that, that was it for me is I, I realized that wasn't going to work, but it was a real cumulative thing. And I think even for you, you know, it was just that, that whatever it was, it was a, it was a, a, a an accumulation of experiences. And finally you got to that point where, where that was enough. But, you know, what's really nice is that you wrote in your book that you think that for the most part, those, t- those types of confrontational interventions really aren't, aren't that useful, but that you did, you do have some recommendations for how maybe an intervention might be done. I wonder if you could talk about that for a little bit. I think, um, you know, each of us is individual, right? What might work for one person won't work for another. And, you know, some people, I don't think anybody responds well to, especially at this point, because we become reliant on alcohol. I don't think anybody responds very well to somebody sitting there and yelling at you and telling you, you know, and that's what they show, unfortunately, in movies and TV shows. Did you used to it's watch the A&E series? Did you ever watch Intervention? The It was a, like, oh, God. Yeah. My wife and I used to watch it all the time. And it was usually, a, usually what would happen is the addict would get pissed off and run away. <laughs> but, yeah. I don't like, and I, you know, I understand why somebody might be driven to that. Um, you know, this is a good point for me to tell Timothy everything he's done wrong and how it's hurt me and everything like that. I don't think that's a good catalyst to get somebody to decide on their own. You know, if you're yelling and screaming at them, they made the decision for you. It's time for you to go to rehab. If your mom's looking at you and saying you're causing me pain it has to be your decision. It's, is it worth still doing this to her? And the, you know, that's what got me. That's why and again, I understand, you know, you drug somebody through the addict has drugged somebody through the mud for 20 years. And somebody says, this is your opportunity. Um, you know, just as a human, you're like, good. You know, I can put everything on the table. They get to hear everything they've done to me, blah, blah, blah. And it takes a lot of strength on that person's part, you know, whatever it is, your spouse's part to step back and say, 
this might be my moment to confront them. I might want to yell at them, but that's not going to get him where he needs to be. And ultimately that's my goal. Yeah. So you, after this uh, meeting with your mother and your family, you, and you were already ready to go to treatment, you went to treatment. And I think, I think if I remember right in your book, you went to a couple of treatments and maybe it was the first one you didn't like where they did the horses. Is that Yeah. Um, it was, I didn't like either treatment, <laughs> okay. but the first one, I wasn't going to accept it. That's what I said. The first one was technically a waste of time because I didn't plan on stopping drinking after. And was that before had, this intervention? Was that before this conversation? Okay. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So and, the, but, and the, the second treatment. And you, that was the one where you said, I don't want one that has anything to do with AA, right? That's the first okay, treatment. I'll let you talk. <laughs> the first treatment, the only thing I took out of it was I don't like AA. Right. Right. Cause it talked, it was centered around AA, wasn't it? See, I used to, <clears throat> correct. You know, all programs are, and I have the personal feeling it's because they're easy to run and you can maximize revenue. But, um, at the time I was actually very religious. I'm very atheist now. And I was very religious. And what I didn't like about it is it, it doesn't comport with the Bible. You don't just, you don't ask God to take away your sins and take away your short fallings. And then they all disappear. That's just not how the Bible works. So when I was going through it, I was just like, this program is nonsense. You know, I, I don't care what they have to say. And, you know, I wasn't going to get sober no matter what at that point, but that set me up to get sober as in, I knew I didn't like that program. So in the second sobriety attempt, I didn't have to focus on how much it sucks. Um, that was actually, <clears throat> my parents were ready for the intervention. So they actually had a list of facilities that I could go to. And I called a couple of facilities and the first one, I called them all and I asked, can you get sober without AA? And I was still religious at that point, but I said, can I get sober without AA? The first one that said, yes, I went to. Cool. Yeah. It's, um, it's a shame, really. It's a shame that, and I'm very familiar with AA, but it's a shame that they present the damn thing just as they did in 1935. Yeah. Yeah. It's such That's a shame. That's what my thing is, right? If we're going to call it a disease, if we're going to say the medical in industry needs to deal with it, what treatment hasn't changed since 1935? Are you going to get cancer treatments from 1935? Our technology and understanding of the human mind has progressed so much, yeah. even in the last 15, 20 years, to say you should be using something 70 years old, there's just a problem there. There yeah. is. And, you know, boy, there's so much we can talk about. But I, I, you wrote a lot about the difference between AA and smart recovery. And I'm familiar with both, much more familiar with AA. Um, I did, I went through this training to become certified as a smart um, facilitator, but I never really did anything with that. It was like I did that just before COVID. 
you know, and so I've never actually been to a smart meeting. I've been to some online, you know, but, um, so I'm, I have some familiarity with smart and then I have a lot of familiarity with AA and AA is kind of complex. It's kind of hard to kind of really pin down, but those, the fact is that AA is presented with language from language that was created from people who went through a religious experience in the 1930s. And it's totally unrelatable to people, anyone anymore, honestly. Um, you know, I, I, so I got sober in 1988 and that, and by then the book that they were using was already 50 years old. And I remember then thinking, wow, this is really an old book. Isn't there anything newer? (laughs) And then I started reading it like, it's it's kind of weird too. It's like, you know, but um, uh, that's another story. But now it's like, um, that's like 80 years old. So I just think, I think in terms like, it it would be like giving me a book back then that was written in 1908 or something. Yeah, that's, it just, ugh. I know. I can spend a couple hours on why I don't like AA and how much I don't. I know. (laughs) And I, (laughs) those are really, those are entertaining conversations. So I think I'm going to have you back to have that. I I have another friend here who we talk to about that a lot too. I'm just kind of frustrated about it because there's some good aspects to it, but there's the, the whole presentation of it is terrible. And unfortunately a lot of the treatment centers are. So anyway, so you didn't have anything to do with that. And then, but then the treatment center that you went to, where that you, 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 you found it beneficial except for is, I thought that was funny when you talk about the horses. I love that, you know, that, that <laughs> and, it, and it was true what you wrote. You said, you know what, when I get out of here, I'm not going to have a freaking horse. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, um, you know, I think it's why I'm an independent counselor. I think the industry as a whole is of course an industry. So they need to make money. Yeah. But I think the, to the extent they're set up for revenue generation is absolutely ridiculous. And I think that's why they use a, I think that's why they have horses. Um, you know, if you're taught to rely on a horse, when you go home and you don't have that, (laughs) what is that going to do besides you say, Oh, I get to relapse a horse isn't here. Right. It's, and again, you know, and if you're telling somebody they're spending $30,000 to send their loved one to a rehab facility, you say, well, what do they get out of $30,000? And they're like, well, you get horses. Um, you know, we have all kinds of things here that are proven. And of course, your loved ones, they don't know. Like, they've never been in addiction. They don't know if that's going to help you. The best they can do is talk to the experts that say, this stuff is going to help your child. And, you know, I don't know if you have children. I don't, but I'm told, you know, you want to do anything for them. You want to do. So $30,000 is a lot, but if it's going to save your child's life and you're told the only way it's going to work is sailboating trips and horse rides and all these things, you're like, well, I kind of understand why it costs $30,000. Then let's go. Is it at that treatment center where you met the person who um, told you about smart recovery? It is. Um, it was 
the two things I say I got most out of that treatment center were one, 30 days away from alcohol. I was in the middle of the desert. It wasn't an option. So whenever I see recovery facilities, like in the middle of the city, it's very, I don't want to say disturbing, but worrisome to me because you could relapse. You know, you could two days in say, I need a drink. Whereas if you're in the middle of the desert, you know, you have to leave and you might die. (laughs) You might get stuck. And the other thing was being exposed to smart recovery. I had never heard of it. Um, even the facility didn't say anything about smart recovery. It just so happened to be that I met a young lady that told me, you know, there is a secular way there, you know, that is science-based that you can use. And at that center, we didn't have uh, access to computers or anything like that. So I didn't get to experience it until I got out. But when I got out, I fully immersed myself in it. I took the facilitator training just so that I could know the program best. I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know if I would use it. I didn't know what road was going on. But if you can teach it, you can understand it. That's me, me too. I, I, I wanted to learn about SMART. And so I thought the best way to do that would be to take the facilitator training. And also, I just want to I want to have more uh, podcast episodes about smart. And I do have some contacts, but just haven't really gotten gotten to do that yet. But I think that smart is a fantastic um, program. It's a, it's a great way for people to um, get help for whatever their behavior is that's causing problems in their life. And you're right. It's it is science based. It's based in cognitive behavioral therapy. But what I like about it is they will change with new information. Yep. It's a, it's a medical, yeah. you know, it's, it's science-based and our understanding, you know, science doesn't change, but our understanding of science changes. So to say that this is a disease that requires medical treatment and it's the same for 70 years is ludicrous. Smart recovery is willing to, change their publications is willing to change their exercises as we come to a greater understanding of the human mind and addiction in general. And there really is an emphasis for uh, um, the individual to be personally involved in their recovery and do the work involved with their recovery. And, you know, they're responsible. They, they, they own their recovery and to set their own goals for it. And what a lot of people in AA and maybe even some other uh, recovery programs would find really interesting is there's no expectation that you spend the rest of your life going to smart meetings. I think they even encourage it. Um, I don't want to say you failed at the program if you're doing it for the rest of your life, because no matter from cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, you can always learn. I practice it in my daily basis, not just with my clients, but on myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny though, when you think about um, the whole recovery journey, you know, that I've been on like for most of my life now, cause you know, I got sober when I was 25 and I'm, well, that's a long time ago. Uh, but uh, my motives for, for doing it have certainly changed. So in the beginning it was like, man, I needed to get the basics of survival together. 
I needed to learn how to hold a job and have a roof over my head and feed myself. And then, you know, over time, you know, oh boy, now I need to, you know, learn how to function in a marriage and blah, 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 blah. And now I don't, I don't know. It's like, um, you know, I'm still doing it, but I'm, I'm interested in, I guess, I guess I'm interested in recovery just as a phenomenon. I'm, I'm interested in, in, in how it impacts people in every way and how our society, how, how it, our society is influenced by it, the culture of it. It's just, to me, it's really fascinating. So now I don't know. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really attend meetings because I'm a, I, I think that I need the meeting so much for my personal growth, but, but I guess I kind of do. I, I enjoy them. I don't know. It's kind of complicated, but it's not, I guess I'm at a place where I feel like honestly, Timothy, that um, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be okay. You know, I, f- I feel like I got my life back. I feel like I and I think that's the goal of smart is not to necessarily stop, go to meetings, but to be able to direct your recovery on your own, to make it part of who you are, not to say that you're making not drinking part of who you are, but to make the principles of smart recovery who you are. Well, you wrote a little bit about um, labels you know, that we put on ourselves. Like, um, it's really interesting that, you know, in AA, um, at every meeting you call yourself an alcoholic, you introduce yourself, you know, it's not required that you do that, but it's just kind of the culture. That's what you do. Smart recovery. You don't, you don't, you don't do that. And I have personally, um, been training myself to get away from using that label on myself. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that. Um, are they, are these labels useful? Are they damaging? Does it matter? I think once you get further in sobriety, it's good for you to define it for you. Maybe, maybe, um, it's good for you to label yourself. But for me, I know it was harmful. Um, I'm Timothy. Um, you know, I'm not an addict or alcoholic. I'm not a Camaro driver. Um, these are parts of my life. That's not who I am. I am me. So when somebody says you are an alcoholic and you're that way for the rest of your life, it's just, for me, it's very off putting. Um, I don't consider myself an alcoholic in the way that other people present it. Um, I'm asked quite frequently, you know, can you drink now? Uh, if you say you're not an alcoholic and I think that what my answer is, is what people should shoot for, which is, I don't know, but I don't want to try. Um, my life has come to a point where whether I can drink or not, it doesn't hold any good for me. There's no reason for me to, you know, technically alcohol is poison and it's really strange that anybody's drinking it, but, um, I'm to a point in my recovery where I'm uh, comfortable enough that I can be in any drinking situation. Um, People I know have gotten sober partially because they see me out having fun and not drinking. And they're kind of like, we didn't know we could do that. We didn't know that we could function. You know, you're always told on TV that 
you can't be around drinking or your life is going to have to change in some negative ways where it's a good justification to not get sober. Um, and again, individual, some people can't be at bars. I know in the first year, it wouldn't have been for me good to me to be at a bar. It just wouldn't have been a smart decision. But eventually I got to the point where I can be out. I can be doing anything. In fact, you practice, you practice in a strip club, right? Are, are you, is that what you currently do, do your work now? <laughs> is yeah, that right? I was just there last <laughs> night and I just got a new client last night. Okay. Um, it's, it is, um, you know, when a dancer hears that somebody can be in that type of environment and I tell them, you know, I have a few other of your workers as my clients. The thought is I never knew somebody could do this sober. I didn't know that was even an option. That and really is actually a good, actually is a good thing that you're doing. Um, you probably are in a position to help a lot of people there. Yeah, you know, because some people, as I said, some people, you might go through 20 years of recovery and you will not be able to go to a bar. And that's perfectly fine. Um, I just happen to be at a point where I can. And I've always hated strip clubs. I've always, yeah. I've never been a strip club person. Yeah. My first time <laughs> going in was with my strip club addict friend. <laughs> and... I always rolled my eyes at him because I live two hours from him. So if that's what he wants to do, whatever. And first time in there, I made a friend, a real friend, not a, you know, spend money on my lap dances and you're now my friend. Um, and I got a client and I spent time with her for a few weeks and I actually ran into the owner and the owner heavily discourages the girl's if he finds out you're using at his club, you're gone. Um, so I told him what I do and he said, you know, good. I want you here. Cool. Is, is, um, drug abuse, um, is it common, uh, for, for, um, women who work in, um, the strip club? Most women, you know, kind of play into the stereotype, but don't. It's a lot of single mothers trying to help their children, but they don't want to be doing it that way. So they're using drugs and alcohol so they can do it that way. So they can help out their kids. Well, and that's not everybody. You know, there are some in the young 20s that just want to make money so they can go out and do some heroin. Right. Right. Wow. That isn't, you know, you could write a book about that. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it is, you know, and it shattered a lot of my, and I think a lot of my experiences in sobriety have shattered, um, uh, prejudices that I had. Um, you know, you see on TV, these girls are all having sex out the back and, you know, they're all dirty and love their drugs and stuff like that. And that's in my experience, not how it is, but when I went to get sober again, if you would have told me, um, when I got sober, you'd be doing work out of a strip club. You wouldn't be making money. Uh, you wouldn't have a family of your own, all these things I would have said, just kill me now. Oh. Um, yeah. 
that sounds horrible. But through sobriety, my personal path changed. And I think uh, smart recovery and how I was really opened me up to changing. It has, you know, we didn't really talk about this, but you are, um, you have a really amazing personal story, in my opinion, in that uh, not, okay, not only did you start off in life with dyslexia and a learning disability, but you went on to have a very successful career and you wrote that you had to work like longer and harder than other people, but you were very successful um, in that career. And then you also had a terrible accident. Um, you re- like to race cars. You had a terrible accident where you suffered brain trauma and you've had surgeries where you've lost like a third, right? Of your brain. Yeah, I don't know if you can see it on the camera or not, but I have a flat spot right here. And that's from two brain surgeries. Uh, when I, so 2004, I was out racing with my friends. I wrapped a car around a pole, you know, coma for, I want to say it was 10 days. Uh, my poor parents, they told my parent to my parents twice that, you know, he's done. That's it. You know, I was Catholic at the time. There's something called your last rites where your priest comes in and assigns your soul to heaven because you're dead. And I had that happen. It was just, and when I got out of my coma, I was told, you know, you're a vegetable, deal with it. And that's part of the motivation for me getting better. I, when somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm going to come full force at it. Yeah. Uh, I, I just found that that story alone was inspiring. You know, even if you, even if you didn't have to overcome addiction, it was, it was all of that background that was, that kind of blew me away that, wow, uh, it's just, it was just like really incredible that you were able to achieve what you did. But then in sobriety, like, I think that, I think that maybe if I, the impression I got from reading your book was that, you know, before you got sober, you you really judged yourself based upon the success that you were having at work. You really loved your job. You you would you would you would after committing suicide or trying to commit suicide, you would just wrap up yourself and go to work. You know, yeah. I would. Yeah, that was. You know, I would literally. I have marks all over my wrists. I would carterize my own wounds so I could get into my office on time. Um, if the suicide attempt didn't work, which obviously it didn't, um, I still needed to go to work. Um, it was just how I defined myself. I could not miss a day of work no matter what, you know, I could be out drinking and flandering and everything like that. It was all okay. As long as I got to work, but you've changed now. So you don't, you're not quite you you're not as career focused i guess or you 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 how do you define your how do you define a successful recovery life today for yourself for myself um i don't want to sound altruistic i don't give myself pats on the back but it's how many people i can help um it's what can i do one of the biggest uh experiences i've had since i was sober is right before i left um Right before I left rehab, there just happened to be, you know, there was a lot of stuff that just clicked. 
Um, there just happened to be a Christian group <laughs> that stopped by and said, you know, we're going to Haiti to rebuild. And we went down to Haiti and normally I wouldn't be able to do something like this because of epilepsy, but they had two army paramedics with them. So it allowed me to be down there. And it just gave me the point of not to ever minimize your own problems, not to ever say somebody has worse problems than me. Mine don't count. Um, but to know that somebody else has made, and you don't want to say worse um, because everything's individual, but because somebody has made it through these horrible situations and is still happy, is still fulfilled that I know I can do it. And in my case, you know, it's 10, 11, 12 year old kids that are being escorted to school by AK-47, don't know where their next meal is coming from. Some of the happiest kids I've ever seen. You know, my my nieces and nephews are growing up in Newport Coast and throw temper tantrums, <laughs> you know, because they're not getting a toy. Whereas these people are able to achieve happiness regardless of the fact. So when I have a problem, I need to address it. It's a problem to me. It needs to be addressed. It can't be dismissed. However, you know that happiness can still be achievable. Yeah. Um, you wrote something that I like uh, about the goal of sobriety. You wrote, the goal of sobriety shouldn't be just to become sober, but to accomplish meaningful feats by being sober. It's not how you went it's how you came out of it and maintain your status of sobriety and then you just kind of ask yourself questions you know is sobriety helping me get closer to my goals um is it helping me achieve my dreams um and i think that that i wish that i think that that was probably my focus when i was first starting out but but it was sub it was kind of like subconsciously my my focus you know, but I think it's, I think that that is so important for anyone starting out to realize that, you know, you're, you're not drinking for a reason, right? It's not, it's not just to not drink you, you is to have a life and you get to decide what kind of life you're going to have. That was another problem I had with AA, you know, they have that saying, and it's, uh, if you want what we have, you know, keep on coming to our meetings. And I look right. at these people and I say, I don't want what you have. <laughs> um, because the only pride you take is the fact that you're not drinking and you're kind of stuck in that. And again, it goes to when I'm in, at this club and people are like, oh, we didn't know you could be out here because we're taught in AA that we need to, we can only hang out with, um, people that don't drink because they're the only ones that don't, that understand us. And for me, the time of your sobriety doesn't matter. It's what you've achieved with it. Um, if I'm 10 years sober and all I do is white knuckle it and attend three AA meetings a day and, you know, I'm on food stamps and, barely getting by what was really what was the point of being sober what how much better is my life really um so to me getting sober is it's always with you that you needed to get sober but it's what can i accomplish with this sobriety and that can be any you know that doesn't have to be work or money you know i i have no money compared to what i used to i'm working in a completely different field it's have you accomplished your goals 
nobody else's goal should really matter to you. It's, and that was part of my problem. You know, I was told growing up, if you don't have a wife and child and a big house and a nine to five, that you're a complete failure. And I think society somewhat raises us that way. You know, I got a, I got a vasectomy at age 29. <laughs> um, even the doctor, the doctor said, I have a rule, which is if you're under 45, are unmarried and don't have kids, I will not do a vasectomy. And I sat and talked to him for a while and he said, you know what, I'll do it. Um, you sound like you're making a level-headed good decision. You're doing, and it's what's important for me, you're doing what's right for you. you know, and again, you know, um, get sober, have kids. If that's your goal, if your goal is to have kids, have a family, everything like that, but also know it's perfectly fine for that not to be your goals. Right. Well, again, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed your book. I can, I can enthusiastically recommend this book. I really can. There's a lot of good information in there. I never did get around to asking you about some of the things, some of the questions I had of, 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 uh, some of what you wrote in there. I'll, I'm, I'd like to have you back again sometime. Um, and we can talk about some of these t topics in more detail. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we can go into. Like, uh, there's a lot of stuff to talk about AA compared to smart recovery and some of the, um, you know, some of, some of that I think is really, really interesting. Um, and uh, the alcoholism is a disease concept. There's a lot of good stuff in that book. But bottom line is, um, I honestly think that wherever you are in your recovery, this is a good book to read. I mean, there's some, and even if you're not even the person in recovery yourself, uh, there's some good stuff in there to read. If you have an addict in your life, you know, that you want to help. So you've done really good work, Timothy. I think that, I think that you can, you can feel good about what you've done with your recovery. I think that you are, you're achieving your goals for sure. Um, I was inspired by reading this and it was really nice to meet you. And glad that you thank you very much. It was nice to meet you as well. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyond belief sobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.